Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Hello and welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, Family Stories. Each Sunday we tell the stories of normal people caught up in the global events of the Second World War. Usually these accounts are sent in by our listeners, but today being Valentine's Day we thought we'd do something a bit different. While researching his new book, James has uncovered some letters from Bill Wharton who fought with the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry. These are love letters Bill sent to his wife during the war. We hope you enjoy them. These are a series of letters written by Bill Wharton and uh, he was promoted to captain in July 1944 in B Squadron of the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry and his son Michael gave me um, a copy of his father's wartime letters to his mother, Marion. And Bill was a little bit older. Um, He'd also been a pre-war member of the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry um, and had been commissioned from the ranks as well. And he was a sensitive chap, obviously a very popular figure as well, a gentle soul and a very good leader of men. And the warmth of his personality really comes out in these letters, as does his deep love for his wife. There's a sort of added poignancy because his wife Marion is pregnant at the time with their first child. And of course, he's in an incredibly dangerous situation. And the prospect of not seeing her or ever seeing his unborn child um, weighs on his mind considerably but they're they're letters from the war but they're also love letters as well and appropriate I think for Sunday the 14th of February St Valentine's Day. The first letter I'm going to read is written on the 1st of June 1944 while he's waiting um, to go uh, across the channel and take part in the D-Day invasion. Darling Having had but one letter from you since we were last together, I find it difficult to know what to say, and more especially so since we are confined to camp, and each day is so much like the one before. I have heard a whisper that our mail is not being delivered until after a delay of some weeks, in which case you are also awaiting news from me. The pressure of work has eased quite a bit during yesterday and today, so that yesterday afternoon we were able to pay a visit to the camp cinema, and this afternoon was spent reading when, lying on my bed, I fell asleep. Last night I made a determined effort with my socks when, in a three-hour spell, I darned half a dozen pairs, some of which have been sadly in need of mending for a year or more. I improved tremendously during the evening's work and am resolved not to allow holes of such error to ever occur again. That is, if I can obtain some more wool. Today brought in the month of June with overcast sky and the temperature much lower than of late. It has rained a little this evening and brings to mind one of those pre-war days when you and I had intended to go to tennis, only to change our plans because of a shower and go for a walk in the cool, fresh country around Babworth. 
As I look up now at the green leaves on the trees swaying in the breeze, I have a sudden pang of longing to be walking there with you. Old memories come to me of you and I cross the golf links to old Joe Cam's land and through to the road that led back to the schoolhouse. It is hard to realise that it is five years since we did those things and harder still to think that we have to wait through more months before we will be able to do them again. On Sunday it will be your birthday and I will be thinking of you then and hoping and praying that you are well and happy. Again on the 6th we will be thinking of what that day means to you and I. Is it not remarkable that not only have we not spent that anniversary together, but we have not even been in the same country? And so once again, we have to put forth the oft-repeated hope that next year may be different. What an elusive thing that different year is. However, we can count among our blessings that the end of 1943 did bring us together and that we have had some marvellously happy times during the past months of this year. Thinking of those times, I'm so glad we took the opportunity of going to Carlisle and spending those ten lovely days at Bournemouth. After being away for so long, it was delightful being with you, darling, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. It makes me wish we were celebrating at the Norfolk this weekend. Wouldn't that be lovely? Can you picture the head waiter casting an eagle eye around and the old man divering backwards and forwards looking for his notebook, which is all the time reposing in his tail pocket? After dinner, you could have your pims and I my bitter. Or we might even have those martinis they seem so eager to thrust upon us. Yes, they were happy times, Marion, and I count myself lucky to have shared them with you. I hope to be laughing at life with you again before so many months, but I do insist on pillows being left in the correct place. Well, darling, though I have not heard from you of late, I know you are thinking about me in the odd moments. I too think of you a great deal, and so I had to write you tonight, even though you may not receive this letter for some little time. I will go on thinking of you through the coming days and looking forward with so much anticipation to seeing that smile of yours when we next meet, and so to bed where perhaps I may dream of you. Good night, my dear. My love always, Bill. And the second letter is from the 15th of June when he's obviously been nine days in Normandy. 15th of June, 1944. My darling, again we have lived through a day of standing by and thinking that any moment we might be off. It has been a lovely hot sunny day and we have taken advantage of the glorious weather to do some necessary washing and have some sleep. It was simply grand lying in the sun this afternoon. It was so peaceful and seemed so far removed from the war which will surely catch up with us shortly. Actually, we're to be on the move at first light tomorrow, the news of which gives me that curious tight feeling in the pit of the stomach that always comes before the battle. The crew I am with now, having taken them over on D-Day after their commander had been sounded, are a really grand set of lads. There is nothing like active service for really getting to know fellows when you live and eat together. Despite the tight corners we have been in, we have been able to laugh it off afterwards and have at times simply roared at our own wit. Maybe this is a form of relief, but anyway, it helps a lot to take away the strain of the fighting. Mills, for instance, the small cocky gunner who hails from Long Eaton, does not smoke except in dire emergency. The other day, when we beat off a close-quarter infantry attack all on our own, we took advantage of a lull to light up, and we all kept on smoking, he included, until the crisis was over. 
Now, whenever we hand round the facts, we never fail to ask him if the situation is acute enough to warrant him lighting up. The operator is from near Worksop, a first-class boy as cool as it's possible to be in action. Another member is a youngster, a Londoner, who joined us recently and did remarkably well the other day. Surprisingly enough, he is in the printing trade. I always get them. The driver, a Welshman, is a wee bit nervous, but a good chap, and we will pull him together all right. Incidentally, I would love to see you in your new dresses, especially the navy and white one, which I know will suit you. Wearing that and a touch of lipstick, I could love you and kiss you. I would stand off whilst you renewed your lipstick. I do look forward to the time when you and I will be able to step out looking our handsomest. But who's going to hold the baby? Do you think we might swing it on Marge? Then, of course, she wouldn't need to spend her money on foolish things and maybe we could have a loan. How is she going on? And I wonder how her paratrooper Admara is at this time. Well, darling, as usual, when I sit down in the open to write to you, people come up to talk to me and sure enough, Colin and a sergeant friend have arrived to pass the time of day. So I must needs be desert you, my darling, as indeed I am always doing. So lots of love and do look after that third member. Love you, sweetheart. Yours, Bill. And this letter dates from the 16th of July, 1944. Darling, yes, yet another address, and now we style ourselves the British Liberating Army. The last one was the British Western European Force. It sets me wondering, a little idly perhaps, on which department is responsible for that important work. No doubt all well paid. It reminds me of the American way of writing up colourful titles for their fighters. The Brown Bomber, the Manassas Mauler, all of which is, by the way, in a letter to you, darling, just a lack of inspiration on my part. Last night, the peace and quiet of the hitherto virgin orchard was shattered by the crack of falling shells from long-range enemy guns. Two fell in the orchard, awakening me to hear my operator calling out that we'd been hit. He is a rather timid boy, and he jumped up as soon as he heard the shelling with the intention of spending the rest of the night in the wagon. The rest of us stayed put in our position on the ground alongside and escaped injury. No matter how much I tell these boys to stay put until a lull, always the odd one loses his nerve and all too often becomes a casualty. He was hit in both legs, the Achilles tendon being severed in each case. Can you give me an expert opinion as to whether he is repairable or will he be crippled for life? Having dressed the wounds and given him the usual that he'd got a nice blighty one, I had a look round for other casualties. One of those was a sergeant who'd been away from us for about a fortnight and had only come back that day. He had a large piece of shrapnel in his back, and I needed but one glance to see that he would soon die. We took the two of them on stretchers to a nearby medical dressing station, with three other casualties, where the sergeant died within the hour. This place was full of casualties, as some shells had fallen among tents as well as troops. Today we are all busy digging holes in which to sleep. This morning, Mickey and I went off on their jeep to attend an open-air church service at 2nd Army HQ with the Great Monty on parade. Just keep an eye on the photographs for Mickey and I, but a few yards from the great man himself. Returning from this function, we called at a large town where M introduced me to his latest girlfriend. With her, we went along to the house where he stayed when he was on his way to join us. The old couple here were charming and gave us a cordial welcome with delicious coffee and a glass of very strong rum. They had a lovely garden, flanked by high walls, against which pear and apple trees were growing. 
The garden also contained strawberries, gooseberries, and red currants, and I enjoyed myself immensely walking around and tasting them. We had lunch at the best pub in town, where all the war correspondents live, and where M introduced me to Bob Cooper of the Times. We had an excellent lunch after M had charmed the waitress. He speaks French like a native and gets on with one and all, especially the ladies. His girlfriend is young, age twenty, and sweet, engaged to a schoolteacher. But M trying to talk her out of it, the rogue. We arrived back here early this afternoon, where M had to go out on duty for a change. I took advantage of his tent and bed to have a couple of hours of really refreshing sleep. It would appear that the middle east siesta habit has returned. However, I felt the occasion warranted a nap after the exertions of last night. Colin has returned today from the rest camp, where he has enjoyed a good rest and a fair amount of liquor. He is crowing over the amount of mail built up during his absence, and is now hard at work on his replies. We have just received our naffy supplies, which include a bottle of English beer, seventy cigarettes, bar of soap, and a razor blade. I suddenly feel like a millionaire. I began this letter after dinner when M, who had been away on a conference, arrived for his meal. He is on good form, a distinct change from his melancholy moods of recent days. And as he chatted away on this and that, I came to suspect that he had partaken of a drink or two over at RHQ. Seeing me engaged in writing, he suddenly grabbed some of the paper and now has pushed over a sealed letter to you for me to post. I'd like to know what he told you. Remember, he has had the odd drink or two. Tomorrow we move from this place. That is as much as I can tell you. Hence this attempt to give you as much news before work interferes. We heard from Johnny Lawson today. He is in hospital in Sheffield, which he says is the drabbest place. It seems it was once a mental hospital, and Johnny says that it retains that feeling. The nurses have not enough glamour for him. I'm enjoying reading Frontier Passage when I find the time between Call of Duty, writing to you, my darling, or thinking of you, and falling asleep. The light is now failing, and I think of you sitting near me. I picture you and the little gorgeous one. I picture her and look forward to be with you and starting our life over. It's the thing that lies uppermost in my mind, the first thing in my life. Is she becoming active yet? I hear little or no news of your dad. Is he well? Please give him my regards. And now I must go to sleep in my hole. Tomorrow we shall be packing up once again. I shall be thinking of you and watching for your next letter. Keep loving me, darling, as I do you. Lots of kisses. Yours, Bill. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to the Rest Is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. 
He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. So the next one, I'm going to move on to the 29th of July, um, by which time his new squadron commander is Mickey Gold. And Mickey Gold's a bit of a character, um, a bon viveur, and always manages to sort of get the best out of every situation in which he finds himself. And Mickey Gold had been in the um, in the desert with the Sherwood Rangers, but had been moved to a different regiment and now has come back and rejoined them. 29th of July, 1944, and this is on the eve of Operation Bluecoat, incidentally. My darling, I'm writing this at the strangest of times and the strangest of places, but the circumstances are such that I invariably think of you and feel I must write. Maybe you can guess the situation. No doubt you will have received by now Mickey's second letter. Careful with it this time, honey. We have had a grand time during the last few days. M, that's Mickey, Colin and myself have been messing in the farmhouse. We've had the luxury of a well-set-out table in a pleasant room. The food... We bought a lamb which, with peas, potatoes, mint sauce, eggs, buttercream, cherries and red currants, has been simply grand. This evening we had a bottle of red wine, which had been brought to light by the boys who cook and look after us. An hour or so ago, we had what will probably be our last dinner there, and which consisted of two chops each. Baked and new potatoes, peas followed by plums and cream. Mickey has been in great form. How he loves comfort, and how he always has it under all conditions. The other evening we had the CO to dinner, after which he produced a large cigar for each of us. Yes, darling, we've been having a nice war, but all good things come to an end and we shall have to start earning our keep again. I shall pray for your happiness tonight, dearest, hoping that the best way of ensuring that will be for me to rejoin you in the not-too-distant future. So little gorgeous is still remaining in deep slumber. She's going to be a girl, all right. A rough neck would have let you know by now. Do you recall 15 years ago, honey, when we first met? And now you and I are married and about to go one step further than the roses round the door. Of course, you have to forget that we haven't that door. That would spoil the story. Darling, we have come far along our road, and I am much looking forward to continuing it with you. The pity is we are missing so much. Often I want you so very much, and I know at those times we could be delightfully happy if we could be together. So much in love. It is so hard to have to wait to love you. Yours, Bill. The last letter I'm going to read um, is from the 5th of August, 1944, uh, when he's had a bit of a break after a number of days in action on Operation Bluecoat. Hello, my darling. At last, an opportunity to send you a few lines. Actually, I'm lucky to have the chance, as we should have moved on again last night, a plan that was changed at first light. Giving us a couple of hours' grace. 
I'm a bit vague recalling how long we have been engaged on this operation, but I believe today is the seventh day. We have moved several miles, and one day in particular we killed and captured a lot of Germans in some very close fighting. Yesterday was a terrific day for me, and never have I felt so weary as last night. For some four or five hours after first light, I walked around contacting our infantry. I went through woods, crops, bracken and hedges until I was really soaked. Due to mist, visibility was down to a 100 yards or so, and more than once I wondered if I had missed our front-line positions and was walking into enemy territory. However, my map reading, which at one time was a weak point, has improved out of necessity, and I reckon to be equal to anybody in the squadron. Many thanks for the notepaper, which I badly need. It came just as I was being briefed for a particularly sticky piece of work, which involved pushing forward into some very close wooded country, in which there was a number of enemy tanks. I looked eagerly into the packet in vain for a note from you. Luckily, I was able to work my troop through into a good position without mishap, though other friends similar to ourselves had two knockouts, but a hundred yards or so from us. I am beginning to think that the Battle of France consists of pushing forward into field after field, each of which may contain a hidden tank or gun, a process which is not without strain, and I am beginning to think that I have done more of it than any other officer in this unit, and it's about time I had a rest. The thing is that now I am captain, I shouldn't be troop leading, but we lose these guys as fast as they come up, or they are inexperienced, and some are windy, and so I continue to go out in front. I sometimes wonder if I am running my luck too far. Yesterday we had our first cooked meal for six days, when we experienced a lull during the evening. Quite a contrast to the fare we were enjoying at our farm last week. My corporal driver is an incurable looter who spends hours in ruined villages from which he returns with all sorts of trinkets and articles. A week ago, he came back with a huge doll dressed in flowing crinoline and bared shoulders over which hung gorgeous blonde ringlets. She, Marguerite, rides the tank wherever we go, inside during action, outside at other times. We have great fun asking over the intercom how she is going on, especially if we've been firing or a leaving barrage has been brought down on us. It must be admitted that she takes it calmly, barely turning a blonde hair. Jimmy Mack has returned to the fold, and I thought it would mean my taking down the third pip. Mickey had a talk to me on the subject. He wanted to have his cake and to eat it, as usual, and as much as he wanted me to remain captain with the squadron. Anyhow, the situation has worked itself out for the moment due to a casualty, and the plan at the moment is that Jimmy is to go to another squadron. I had a cheery letter from Johnny Lawson, at present in hospital in Sheffield. He says there has been some improvement in the standard of glamour there, though it falls far short of his standard, as does the alcoholic situation. I was glad to hear your latest letter that my wounded operator will stand a good chance of becoming fit again. He wrote expressing his thanks for me getting him to the dressing station without, as he puts it, thought of personal risk. I was amazed at the notes on the behaviour of Muriel's much-sailed husband, who seems to place a bath last on the list of necessary evils. What a revelation, and especially when you remember that his family could make Muriel a lady in given period. Perhaps M had better start giving some lessons herself. I must close now, darling. There may be time for a few minutes' nap before we embark on the next step. I wonder how long more, darling. I'm so anxious to be with you when Gorgeous comes along. Besides, I still love you. Bill.
Well, what a poignant set of letters. Uh, thank you, James, for sharing those with us. Next week, we'll be back telling your stories. If you'd like us to tell your family's story, please write to us at wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com or go to our Patreon page and click on the Family Stories tab. It's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Thank you so much for listening.